Amen. Let's bow and pray as we open up God's word together this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning acknowledging that you are the king, you do reign, and you will reign. And we rejoice this morning in the good news of the gospel, the one gospel in which we stand. That's where we find life. It's the good news of your death, your resurrection, and the salvation that is full and free, all of grace. I thank you for the many in this room who have found assurance in the promise of pardon at the cross. We have found their forgiveness of sin. We have found their new life. We have found their reconciliation with God. We have found there a new family, a new name, and a new hope. We thank you for the joy and the assurance that you grant in the gospel. And Lord, for those who may not have that assurance, for those to whom that joy sounds foreign, or maybe it hasn't been tasted in a while, I pray that they would find that joy and assurance and confidence as they look to the cross, as they look to Christ, as they reflect on the gospel, the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Lord, we pray that as we open your word, you would strengthen our faith, that you would increase our confidence in your redemptive plan, this plan of salvation that is brought to us through your perfect substitutionary death and your victorious life, your resurrection life. I pray for your help. Pray that you would give all of us a heart that is attentive to your word and to your spirit this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 6. It's good to see you all this morning. You guys are the ones who either didn't stay up late last night or you drank a lot of coffee this morning. I'm not sure which, but you are here. You're awake. It was, a, it was wonderful to get a chance to celebrate Christmas together with many of you. Many of us were here on December 25th, Christmas Day. And there is no better way, I think, to celebrate the birth of Jesus than to worship Jesus with the family of God with the people who follow Jesus. And I also think it's great we can be together today. As the new year kicks off, as we start 2023, what better way to start a new year than to receive God's word, to be reminded of who our God is and what it is that our God is doing, not just this year, but in every year throughout all time. You know, it's common for us and probably for most churches to take the first week in January, maybe the first few weeks in January, and talk about the mission of the church. It's a great time to refocus. A lot of people do that in their personal life. And many churches will do that. We typically do that. Consider what is our identity as the church? Who are we? What are we to be? What is it that God wants us to do? What is our mission as a church? And when we have those conversations here at Redemption Hill, when we talk about our mission, what we really mean is God's mission. Because this mission is not something that we've come up with. The mission for our church, the way we've sort of summarized what we think the Bible teaches, is we want to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. That mission is not something we came up with. That's not some sort of clever marketing jargon that we thought would look good on a sign or on a website. It's not some personal vision that we think is unique to us, that we alone have this unique mission. No, this is simply something that is received. We get our marching orders from God. We get our marching orders from his word. That's where we discover who we are and what it is that God wants us to be and do as a church. And really, in order to understand our purpose in the world, our mission, we have to understand God's purpose. 
We have to understand God's mission, his plan. What is it that he is doing in his world for his glory? Because when we discover that, when, we, when it becomes clear to us what it is that God is at work doing, only then can we understand our part in that bigger story. Well, we're returning to the Gospel of Luke today, which I'm excited to do. I love uh, sort of the topical teaching we often do th- during December, looking at Jesus and the birth, birth of Jesus. But we're jumping back into Luke. And in God's providence, we come to a text today in Luke chapter 6 that records for us the calling of the 12, the calling of the apostles. And I believe that this short and simple text actually helps us to understand God's purpose and God's design for the church. There is historical value here, yes, uh, but there is also a theological principle. There are truths here that are instructive for us. The structure uh, of our text, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, the structure is very simple. There's not a lot to explain structure-wise. Jesus prays, Jesus picks 12 men, and then we have a list of their names. So it's very simple on the surface. But I'm eager to dive in a little bit to some of the the theological principles that are contained in this text because I believe it gives us needed perspective. And we need that perspective as we enter into a new year. I believe it gives us needed encouragement. We need that encouragement. If we're going to be the church God wants us to be, if we're going to be the people God wants us to be, if we're going to engage faithfully in the mission that God has for us, We need that encouragement. And I think this text also gives us a lot of confidence. If we're going to face the future, face the unknowns, face the challenges, face the trials, face the disappointments, we need to have confidence in who God is and what God is doing. If we're going to glorify him, if we're going to be and make disciples of Jesus. So let's look at our text and then we'll dive into it together. Luke chapter six, starting in verse 12. Luke writes, in these days... He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas." the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. There is something, as many as you know, that is unique about these 12. These 12, among all of the the many followers of Jesus, were set apart. They were chosen by Jesus himself for a special role. We often refer to these 12 as his disciples, and they were, They were students, they were learners, they were followers who spent their time with Jesus 24-7, but they were more than disciples because there were actually lots of disciples. There were others who also followed him, traveled with him, listened to his teachings. But these 12 were uniquely named as apostles. An apostle is someone who is sent. The, the, The root word has that idea of sending and sent in an official capacity sent as an official representative. An apostle is someone who carries the authority of the one who sent him, who speaks with the authority of the one who sent him. These men would be given the authority of Christ. That sets them apart from every other follower of Jesus who has ever lived. 
They would be given spiritual power to do miracles that would authenticate the message of Christ that they were preaching. And they would be given the Holy Spirit who would work through them to even write scripture. Several of these men authored books of the Bible that we hold in our hands. Jesus would spend more time with these 12 than he would with anyone else. He would train them, he would teach them, and then he would send them out. First sending them out as missionaries to Israel and then later sending them out as ambassadors for the gospel throughout the known world to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was these apostles who would help to establish the church and they would lay down their lives in the end, just like their master, for the sake of the gospel. This message that Jesus is the son of God who died for sin and that he rose again and he's coming back to judge the earth and that all who repent of sin and trust in him can be saved. That message was at the heart of their ministry and their preaching. These apostles were personally selected by Jesus and named apostles by Jesus. And they, along with the apostle Paul, who would be added later, would be the only apostles. I think in some churches today, there are some who call themselves apostles, but Jesus didn't call them apostles. These are the only ones. Paul and these men, Judas, as you know, would not end up remaining as one of the twelve. Matthias would later be selected to serve in his place. The Apostle Paul would be added, and people sort of go back and forth as to which one is the actual 12th. I'm not really sure, but I know that the apostles were those who saw Jesus face to face. They were chosen by Jesus personally. They were commissioned by Jesus personally to go as his representatives. They were given power and authority by Jesus. And so they're the only ones. We don't have apostles like this anymore. There are several lists like this in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And these listings of the 12 of the apostles are usually broken up into three groups of four. There's sort of a rhythm to the listing of the names. And there's similarities between all these listings. Each group always starts the same. Each group of four always starts with the same name. And although the order within those groups kind of gets moved around, the authors always start with Peter, who is sort of the leader of the pack, And it always ends with Judas. There's some differences in these lists because sometimes these these men in these days had two different names. And you all are familiar with that, that Simon is Peter. Jesus gave him that name as Luke records. Simon, whom he named Peter. Uh, The man that Luke lists here as Bartholomew is called Nathaniel in John's gospel. Matthew is also known as Levi. Thomas is also called Didymus, which means the twin. It was probably a nickname of sorts. And Judas, the son of James, who we find listed here in verse 16, is also known as Thaddeus. So if you look at some different listings, don't get confused. Many people in these days had different names that they would go by from time to time. So there's some differences, but there's also similarities. It always starts with Peter, and it always ends with Judas Iscariot. Many of you know that name. I don't think any of you would name your kids Judas, because he's infamous, because as Luke says, he became a traitor. Iscariot is not his last name. Iscariot is likely a reference to his hometown, Kiriath. It was a city in Judea. He's the only one of the 12 that wasn't from Galilee. And listing his hometown here just helps differentiate him from others with this common name. We also have uh, Judas, who is the son of James. Judas was a common name. Judas is just the Greek uh, version of the Hebrew name Judah. Common name, It was the tribe that David was from. It was the tribe that Jesus was from. 
We do have some Judas in the church. Um, we do enjoy and like that name. But it was a very common name in that day. So Judas Iscariot is simply meant to differentiate himself from, differentiate him from other Judases that were known to the early church. So there's some historical value here. But what are the principles we draw from this? Well, I believe that in the calling of the 12, what we find are three aspects of God's redemptive plan. These three aspects that I'd like to pull out, these truths that shape our understanding of God's redemptive work in the world. And the first is this, number one, God's redemptive work, it depends on sovereign choice. What God is doing in the world to accomplish his plan for redemption, his redemptive work depends on sovereign choice. The calling of the apostles, very simply, as we observe here, was according to God's will. Verse 12 says, in these days he went, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. The calling of the apostles was according to God's will. There wasn't a general election among all of the disciples to determine who the apostles should be. There were no applications. These men didn't come and say, you know, I've been following you for a while and I think I'd like to volunteer to be an apostle. No, they were chosen according to the will of God. We don't know what mountain Jesus went out to. It's not told to us. But we're told here that Jesus, as he often would do, he gets away from the crowds. He gets away even from his inner circle, his followers, and he gets alone with his heavenly father. Luke regularly highlights the the praying, the regular prayer of Jesus. But this occasion is special. This is not his normal devotional practice. You can't pray every night, all night. You will die, okay? So don't feel guilty if you don't spend every night in constant prayer. But on special occasions, when trying to discern the will of God, when there is a significant event looming ahead of you, it's very appropriate to seek the will of God in prayer. And that's what Jesus did. This is an all-nighter. Something big is about to happen. The the way that this is laid out, it it gives us this sense of anticipation. If Jesus withdraws to spend time with his father and he spends all night in prayer, what is it that Jesus has ahead of him? There's another time where Jesus will spend the night in prayer, the night before his crucifixion, another significant event in his life. So something big is going on. Jesus wants an extended time of communion with his father, conversation with his father. The question is why? Well, he's seeking to discern the will of God because he is about to make a monumental decision. He's about to make a very consequential choice in choosing 12. So he's seeking the will of God. If anyone would later question the credentials of the apostles, Luke wants to make clear here that Jesus chose them And that Jesus got it right. He knew what his father wanted him to do. John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name, he's praying here, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. These 12 are the ones that the Father has given to the Son to serve in this capacity. John 8, verse 28, Jesus says, I do nothing of my own authority, 
But I speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus, in choosing the 12, is doing the will of his Father. The idea of choosing at all was God's idea. It was God's will. The idea of choosing 12 was God's will. The idea of choosing 12 men was God's will. And choosing these 12 men and not others is also God's will. Jesus has discerned this through his communion with his heavenly Father. In prayer, he seeks the will of the Father. And in choosing the 12, Jesus does the will of the Father. It's not just this whole night in prayer that indicates this truth. Look at the language that Luke uses in verse 13. It highlights this idea of sovereign choice. When the day came, he called his disciples. There is a summons. He is telling them, here is what you are to do. He gathers this large group of people together that would have included his friends, his close followers, would have included women that were part of his, uh, part of his, his following, would have included maybe even his mother, some other family members. Not all of his family believed at this point, but some may have. And he chooses from among these 12. He chooses is this word for electing, for selecting personally these 12. And this choosing is unusual for a number of reasons. First of all, because usually students applied to follow a rabbi. Jesus wasn't the only rabbi. He wasn't the only teacher who traveled around. And he wasn't the only one who had disciples or followers. As we've seen earlier in Luke, John the Baptist had disciples and followers. The Pharisees had some who followed them and ascribed to their teachings that were their disciples. But usually those disciples sort of applied and signed up and asked if they could be joined to a teacher. But this is different. Jesus chose them. As Jesus would say in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. It's also unique because of who these men were. These men are not highly educated. Some were fishermen, tradesmen, but they weren't scholars. All of them, except for Judas Iscariot, were Galileans. Galilee was the backwoods. These were country boys. They were from flyover country, okay? Uh, They were not from the place where you would typically go to find these scholars and teachers that would change the world with their preaching. But these are the men that Jesus chose. Acts chapter 4, 13 tells us that when uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is who Jesus chose. After a long night of prayer, seeking the will of his father, he chose, and he chose 12. He chose 12 men, and he chose these 12 men. They were not chosen because of their resources. They really didn't come having a lot to offer Jesus. They were not chosen because of their social influence or their connections. This is not Jesus being some sort of master, like, networking specialist. Well, if I get this guy and this guy and this guy, it gives me access to all of these you know, places in society. No, they didn't have those connections. He didn't choose them because of their achievements. These are not notable men. They are chosen because this is who God wanted. God's redemptive work depends, it hinges on his sovereign 
choice. You might say, what does this have to do with us? Because none of us are apostles. You're right, we aren't. But to use the language of 1 Corinthians, consider today your calling, brothers. Consider your calling. Because the same God who through Jesus called the 12 has also called us. He's not called us to be apostles, but he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has called us out of death and into life. He has called us to follow him. He has chosen us to be his children, to be his disciples, to be part of his church. And the question is why? Why did he choose me? Why did he choose you? Why would he call us together to be a part of this church? If I could just read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, because of his choice, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Why did God choose us? Not because of anything in us. Not because of how special we are, not because of what we have to offer him, not because of our impressive wisdom and knowledge, but rather so that Jesus could be everything and so that he could receive all of the glory. The reality of God's sovereign choice should affect us as a church. This should be a truth that shapes who we are and how we seek to discharge our duties as God's church. The reality of God's choosing should be something that brings unity. In calling us to Christ, we are called together. You notice he chose 12. In Mark's gospel, it says he chose these 12 that they might be with him. Jesus is not just choosing individuals. He's bringing together and building something new. You know, it's not an accident that you are here today. We're a weird church. Every church is a weird church because every church has people. But there are some unique people in this church. And you know why they're here? It's because God brought them here. God brought you here. He brought me here. And God didn't make any accidents. There's no mistakes here. He brought together the people that he wanted. And what we have in common is not our background, not our personality, not our interests. What we have in common is Christ. What we have in common is that we've been called by God together into the church. This ought to produce a unity as we embrace our part in this new community that God is building called the church. This reality ought to produce humility in our church. This church must be humble because we can boast of nothing. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Where do we get our wisdom? Not from us, it's from Christ. 
Jesus became to us righteousness from God. Where do we get our righteousness? It's not from us, it's from Christ. Sanctification, how did you become not how you used to be? Why is it that you are different than who you were before Christ? Where does this sanctification come from? It comes through the power of Christ. Redemption, why is it that you have been made right with God? Did you do something to get yourself off of the path that leads to destruction and onto the narrow path that leads to life? No, all of this comes to us through Christ. This should be a church that is deeply humble and that boasts joyfully in Christ, saying that he is everything for us. He is everything for us. The reality of God's choosing also ought to be deeply encouraging because you and I are sinners. You and I are imperfect. You and I fail. But you and I, we together, are exactly the ones that God wants to use here. With all of your baggage and all of my shortcomings and all of our imperfect efforts to work together and serve the Lord and spread the gospel and make disciples, we're going to get some things wrong. And the temptation might be to think, wow, I don't know if this is the right church. Something's wrong here. Maybe it's a mistake that these are the people in this place serving in these roles. And, you know, it's good to be reminded that we are the people that God has brought together at this time in this place. Let that be an encouragement to you. God has put us together, and he delights to use people like us to advance his purposes in the world. God doesn't just reluctantly take applications. Okay, I guess you can be part of my church. I guess you can be one of my disciples. I guess maybe you can help out in my mission a little bit. That's not how this works. God delights to use you and me. He chose us. He sovereignly chooses those whom he loves, those whom he desires to save, those whom he desires to use to advance his purposes in the world so that he gets all the glory. That's how this works. God's redemptive work depends on that sovereign choice, which ought to produce in us a sense of unity, a sense of humility, and a sense of confidence. We ought to be encouraged that this is how God works in the world. He did that with the 12, and he's doing it with us as well. The calling of the apostles is clearly according to God's will. We see that in the prayer of Jesus in that he called and chose the 12. It depends on his sovereign choice. But there's a second aspect of God's redemptive work I want to point you to this morning. Number two, God's redemptive work accomplishes a sovereign purpose. It accomplishes a sovereign purpose. The calling of the apostles was purposeful. There is a strategy here. There is a plan that Jesus is working on. Uh, Notice how Luke begins verse 12. It says, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. You might say, in what days? Well, it's the days where Jesus' ministry was growing by leaps and bounds. Days where Jesus' ministry was gaining a lot of attention. And it wasn't all good. Look up at verse 11, right before our text. At the end of Jesus healing this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, the scribes and Pharisees, verse 11, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. There's a conspiracy here. There's a plot. 
There's a scheme. There is a plan. Satan and the powers of darkness and worldly men who hate the light are working against God, working against God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, resisting his mission to bring the good news of salvation to the world. They are scheming, planning for the future. But so is Jesus. Jesus is also planning for the future. Jesus is making preparation for the establishment of the church. That is why he called the 12. He didn't call the 12 because he wanted some people to hang out with. This isn't just the VIP invite to the party. And Jesus was like, you know what? I like hanging out with these guys more than the rest, so I'm gonna let you guys into the inner circle. No, he called the 12 because this is purposeful. He's laying the foundation for the church. These apostles would become messengers for Jesus, representatives of Christ who would play a crucial role in God's plan to bring salvation to the world. God's plan of redemption includes, first of all, the nation Israel. Twelve men are chosen. Why twelve? Why not four or seven? Seven's a good number, a biblical number. Why not fifteen? Well, he chose twelve because it corresponds to the twelve tribes. Just as God gathered together his people Israel at Mount Sinai and formed a covenant with them, there was 12 tribes. Well, that, there's a new covenant that's going to come through Christ. And this new covenant includes blessings and promises for Israel. And these 12 are chosen in correspondence to the 12 tribes. The message of the gospel will be for the Jews first. These men, all of them, are Jewish They speak Hebrew. They grew up learning the Torah, going to the synagogue, and following the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Thousands will come to saving faith through their ministry in Jerusalem. These guys will preach from the steps of the temple in Jerusalem to the nation of Israel. And because of their faithful ministry, they are promised a special place in the coming kingdom. Luke twenty two twenty eight says, Jesus says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In the future, God has a glorious role appointed for these men. That, that corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. But the calling of the 12 not only has relevance for that nation, but even beyond that, the calling of the 12 has great significance for the church. You see, God's plan from the beginning has not just been to redeem this nation Israel, but to through them bring salvation to all the nations of the earth. God's plan from day one has been the establishment of the church. This is not plan B. This is what God had in mind From the beginning, Jesus will give his life. He will lay down his life for the church, his bride. Jesus will lay down his life for his sheep, for the flock. And these men, by their lives and through their teaching and their writings, will be the foundation for this church, a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2.19, Paul writes to a Gentile church and says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This calling of the 12 is purposeful. Jesus is planning, he is preparing to lay the foundation for the church. 
By the way, this is why no women were chosen to be apostles. Maybe you haven't wondered why there's no women there, but a lot of people do. A lot of people ask that question. Why did Jesus choose 12 men? Because we know Jesus had many close friends who were women. They traveled with him. Jesus ministered often to women. He spoke to them. He touched them. He healed them. He comforted them. Jesus even took women to be disciples, unlike other rabbis who had refused to teach women, who did not think that women should learn doctrine. No, Jesus has Mary and Martha sitting at his feet, and he's teaching them. The first witnesses of the resurrection would be women. So Jesus honors women. Jesus elevates women more than anyone else in his day, but he did not choose a single woman to be an apostle. Why? It's not because he's biased against women. That simply will not do. That's an empty accusation. No, the choice of men to be apostles is tied to the purpose of their calling. It's tied to the purpose of laying a foundation for the church. These men will provide authoritative leadership in and over his church. And since the beginning, God's design for man and woman has been distinct roles. We serve different roles in God's program. They're complementary roles, but they're unique and distinct. Man is to lead in the home and in the church. Woman is to be responsive to godly leadership, to come alongside and embrace this complementary role. Woman is not designed by God to be an authoritative leader in the home or the church. She's designed, women are designed to be essential, necessary helpers. We see this design in Genesis. The man is formed first and he's given his mission from God. And then the woman is formed second. She's taken from his side so that she can serve at his side to help him accomplish the mission that God has given him. We see spiritual leadership in Israel is male. The Levites and the priests were men. And we see spiritual leadership in the church is to be male. Paul will tell Timothy that elders and pastors are to be men and that women are not to exercise authority in the church or to teach publicly over men in the church. That's a pastor-like function when the church gathers. And this is not because women are inferior in any sense. Women are not inferior, inferior intellectually. Women are not less spiritually mature than men. This is simply God's design, that authority is to be discharged by men who function as representatives of Christ. It makes sense then, when we understand the purpose of their calling It makes sense why no women are included in this list. When we see, here's what Jesus is doing. He's laying the foundation for the church. And this is all part of God's sovereign plan. The calling of the 12 was purposeful. Even Judas in this list has a part to play. This too is purposeful. The calling of Judas, who would later become a traitor, is part of God's plan. His inclusion in the 12 is not an accident. God would use his greed and his spite and his unbelief to actually move his plan of redemption forward. You see, the betrayal of Jesus and his subsequent death was necessary. It's necessary that the good shepherd lay down his life for the sheep. It's necessary that Jesus give his life for his bride, the church. This is divinely planned. It's the shedding of Christ's blood that would make atonement for our sin. 
So this ominous note that we find here that Judas was one of the 12. Judas Iscariot, verse 16, says, will become a traitor. That's on purpose. That's on purpose. It's a necessary part of God's plan to bring salvation and establish his church. God's redemptive work unfolds according to a sovereign plan for a purpose. And that purpose includes you and me and this church. Just as I've encouraged you already, consider your calling. Consider also God's purpose for the church and consider your place in the church. Do you see the church as central to God's redemptive plan? Too many people today see the church as optional. It's something that is maybe good for some people, but you can take it or leave it. Listen, God's purpose, his design for salvation is not so that you can have an individual, private experience between you and God. There is wonderful communion with God that we experience. When we follow Jesus' example, we pull away from the crowds and we pray and we read his word and we experience him working in our life. That is essential. But there's more than that. God's purpose in the world is to work in and through the church. This is his evangelism program. You are the worship team. This is God's outreach and, and discipleship plan. It's the church. God is working in and through the church. Do you gladly embrace your place in the church? Or perhaps have you been dismissive of the purpose of God's calling on your life? to add you into this thing he is doing called the church. It's true, the church brings with it relational challenges, disappointments, frustrations. Things can be messy. We are a diverse group of people united together into this new community. But that difficulty has always been present. It was that way for the apostles. Matthew was a tax collector. He was someone who worked for the occupying power of Rome. He was a sellout according to the patriots. But there was another, Simon the Zealot, who was a political revolutionary. He gave his life prior to following Jesus to trying to end the occupation, trying to drive out the Romans. These two men, Matthew and Simon the Zealot, are on total opposite ends of the spectrum. The 12 would have to work through jealousy. They would have to work through attitudes of competition there is relational hurdles they had to overcome, and there will be for us as well. But the solution to those challenges is not to say, well, maybe I don't need to be part of the church. We must recognize that this is God's plan, his purpose for us. These men were named apostles and commissioned, given a job to do. And though we are not apostles, we too have a part to play in the making of disciples, the preaching of the gospel, this is what God is doing in the world, and he wants to use us. Are you participating? Have you embraced your part in the body? Are you using your gifts? Are you serving and investing and advancing with us? Are you pulling on the same end of the rope, seeking to advance the purpose of God in and through the church? Because that's what Jesus is doing here. He's working towards this purpose. God's redemptive work accomplishes a sovereign purpose. There's a third truth I want to bring out. Number three, this third aspect of God's redemptive work is that it is accomplished by sovereign power. It's accomplished by his sovereign power. 
And to make this point, we're going to zoom out just a little bit from this text and look a little more broadly at the New Testament, but I think you can trace with me. With the exception of Peter and James and John, and then Judas, we really know very little about most of these men. I won't put you on the spot, but I wonder if I were to have you raise your hand and say, could you name all 12 of the apostles without looking? Could you do it? Would you remember Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, Judas, the son of James? Would some of those names come to mind? Probably not. We, we hardly know anything about these men except for a few somewhat unreliable legends from church history. Yet these are the men that God used to do amazing things. The book of Acts says that they turned the world upside down with their preaching. How did they do that? What's remarkable is not who these men were, what their names were, what their background was. What's remarkable is what God did in them and through them. It was his divine, sovereign power. It's truly amazing to see where these guys started. As you read the Gospels, we realize they they came a long way. Jesus has to expose early on their small faith. They don't always trust him. Jesus points out that they lack spiritual insight. He says, do you not understand? Have you not read? Jesus has to expose their petty selfishness and pride as they argue and bicker over who's going to get the best seat in the kingdom of God. These men would fearfully desert Jesus in his final hour. And then later, they would turn the world upside down with their preaching. Later, they lived exemplary lives. Later, they laid a foundation for the church. Later, they would author scripture and die gladly for the cause of the gospel. What happened? Where did that come from? That's the power of God. That's the power of God. These were not impressive men, but they served an impressive God whose power was made perfect in their weakness. That's what 2 Corinthians 12.9 says. You see, God delights to use small, unlikely, surprising candidates for his working in the world. And it's always been that way. We know that from the Old Testament as well. Moses goes, Lord, why are you sending me? I'm not a very good public speaker. Gideon says, Lord, why are you sending me? I'm the least in my clan and I'm from the smallest tribe. David was the youngest of his brothers. The prophet Jeremiah was inexperienced. Yet the reason why any of these men or any of the apostles were so greatly used was not because of who they were, not because of their strength, not because of what they had to offer, but because of the sovereign power of God working through them to accomplish exactly what God wanted to do in such a way that God gets all the glory. We ought to draw much encouragement from this reality because, to be honest, let's look around the room. We are not impressive. Christianity today has not called the office here, said we'd love to do a special on your church because you're changing the world. I haven't got that phone call. We're not large. We're not well-known. We're not strong or impressive. But God delights to work through people like us, just like he did through those 12, just like he has throughout church history. God works through ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. I love 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul writes, we have this treasure. He's been talking about the glory of God in the gospel. He says, we have this treasure 
in jars of clay. Back in that day, if you wanted to hide something important, put it somewhere where nobody's going to look. Jars of clay are common household vessels. You wouldn't hide your treasure there unless you really wanted no one to find it, right? We have this treasure in jars of clay, breakable, cheap, disposable, unimpressive. Why do we have this treasure in jars of clay? It's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Church, as we seek to be faithful to our mission in 2023, the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's the power of God that will enable us in this church to persevere in our faith. It's the power of God that will enable us in this church to overcome sin in our lives. It's the power of God at work in you and at work in me that is able to preach a life-changing gospel to the lost. It's the power of God that will result in sinners being saved and the saved being sanctified. It's the power of God that produces disciples. It's the power of God that will enable this church to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us in the truth of scripture. It's the power of God that will help us to pass the torch to the next generation, to resist the devil, to identify and reject false teaching, to raise up leaders, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to forgive one another, to love our neighbors and love our enemies. It's the power of God at work in us that will enable us to give generously and forgive quickly and serve humbly. None of those things are possible in our own strength, not a one of them. What will we accomplish this year as a church without the power of God? Nothing. Nothing at least that has eternal value. Nothing that matters. Nothing that bears real lasting fruit. But the power of God, the sovereign power of God working in and through his people is able to do that and a whole lot more. As Ephesians says, this God is able to do abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask or think to produce for himself glory in his church. Listen, God's purpose for the apostles in laying a foundation for the church was accomplished by his sovereign power and his purpose in us will be as well. These 12 men were called. They were chosen by Christ according to the will of the Father. They weren't perfect They weren't special. They weren't impressive or well-known. But in them, the foundation for the church was laid. And Revelation tells us that their names are engraved in the very architecture of heaven. Revelation 21, 14 says, the wall of the city, speaking of the new Jerusalem, had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What a remarkable thing that God could use men like that and would graciously honor them for their part in his plan for the church. Listen, the same sovereign grace, the same sovereign plan, the same sovereign power continues today. It is at work here in us, in the church. God desires to use us as imperfect, common, unimpressive clay pots He wants to use us to be vessels for his glorious grace. He wants to use us to be ambassadors for his kingdom. Even though we're weak, even though we fall and we fail, 
God's perfect will is worked in and through the church. We could talk a lot about what that looks like, what that means for us as a church to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. But I think it's fitting that we start this year by recognizing that it really all depends on God. His work of redemption depends on his sovereign choice. It fulfills his sovereign purpose, and it's accomplished by his sovereign power. If we have that kind of perspective, if we are confident in that truth, if we are humbled by that truth, energized by that truth, then all the things God has for us this year, whatever they may be, we'll be able to face them full of faith to serve our Lord and trust him. And we'll do it with humility, with love for one another, in such a way that God gets all the glory. Lord, that is our desire, that you would get all the glory in your church. It's yours. You have redeemed us. You have purchased us with the blood of your son. You have called us together. You've given us a new identity and a new purpose and a new mission. Lord, as a pastor, I deeply feel the burden and the weight of casting for this church a vision that is biblical and faithful. But I also recognize that no matter what is said, no matter what is explained from the pulpit, unless you produce in us power, then nothing good will happen. So Lord, while I feel that burden that this church would be faithful in the year and the years to come, I'm also deeply thankful that I know you always accomplish your will and that you are able. You're able to use weak and imperfect pastors. You're able to work through an imperfect, growing, messy church. And we're confident, Lord, that this is what you'll do and you will get all the glory. Lord, as we look back into the past, we see you've already been doing this. We can look at situation after situation that is only explainable as the power of God, the grace of God at work in us. We've seen people saved. We've seen lives changed, marriages healed. We've seen your remarkable provision. We've seen a church grow. We've seen new leaders raised up. We've seen a building, and we could go on and on and on. We've seen your protection. We've seen you grow us and mature us in different ways, and we know as we look to the future, you're going to continue to be faithful. May we respond in faith and trust you and obey you. Lord, we desire that you'd get all the glory here. Amen.